Chapter Four, Part K of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter Four, Part K. The coming of spring was awaited with grim foreboding but the grass was not bound by any man-made almanac and unable to contain itself till the melting of the snow again leaped the barrier of the mississippi this time near natchez and ran through the south like water from a sloshed dishpan the prized reforms of the black legislatures were wiped out more quickly even than their great-grandfathers had been in eighteen seventy seven the worn-out cotton and tobacco lands offered hospitable soil, while cypress swamps and winter-swollen creeks pumped vitality into the questing runners. Southward and eastward it spread, waiting only the opening of the first pussy-willow and the showing of the first crocus to jump northward and meet the western advance there. The dwindling remnants of cohesion and self-control existing before now disappeared completely. The capital was moved to Portland, Maine. Local law and order vanished. The great gangs took over the cities and extracted what tribute they could from the impoverished inhabitants. Utilities ceased functioning entirely. What little goods remained were obtainable only by barter, and epidemic after epidemic decreased the population to fit the shrinking boundaries. Brother Paul, deprived of the radio, now multiplied himself infinitely in the person of his disciples, preaching unremittingly against resistance even by thought to the oncoming grass. Mother Joan's infrequent public appearances attracted enormous crowds as she proclaimed, Oh, be joyful! Give your souls to Jesus and your bodies to the grass! I am the forerunner, and after me will come the ox. Rejoice, brothers and sisters! for this is the end of all your suffering and misery. On foot, or rarely with the aid of a horse or mule, the panic-stricken population marched northward and eastward. Canadian officials, anxious to apply immigration controls with the greatest possible latitude, were thrust aside as though their existence were an irrelevance. Along the lower reaches of the St. Lawrence, the refugees came like locusts to devour the substance of the habitants into empty ungava and almost equally empty labrador the hardier ones pushed armed like their forebears with only axe and shotgun northward and eastward beyond the arctic circle and on to the polar ice they trickled seeking some place which promised security from the grass passenger rates to europe or south america formerly at a premium now shot to unparalleled heights I wound up my own affairs, disappointed at the failure to find a use for the grass, but still keeping it in view as a future objective, and arranged for the removal of the Florida factory to Brazzaville. Heeding the cabled importunities of Stuart Thario, I risked my life to travel once more into the interior to see Joe and persuade him to come back with me. I found them in a small Pennsylvania town in the Alleghanies, once a company-owned mining village. The grass, advancing rapidly, was just beyond the nearest mountain ridge, replacing the jagged Appalachian horizon with a softer and more ominous one. They appeared serene and content, Joe's haggard look of the winter erased. "'I'm in the middle of the third movement, A.W.,' he told me, like a man who had no time to waste on preliminaries or indirections. "'Here!' He thrust an enormous manila envelope at me. 
Here are the first two movements. There are no copies, and I cannot trust the mails or any other messenger to get them out. If possible, I'll send the old man the third movement as soon as it's finished. And the fourth, if I have time. But take the first two, anyway. At least I'll know they're preserved. Joe! Florence! I exclaimed. This is ridiculous! Insane! Come back with me! Silence. You can compose just as well in Europe if it's so important to you. In France, say, or England, away from this danger and discomfort. There is no doubt the country is finished. Come to safety while you can. Florence was busy with a stack of music paper and offered no comment. Joe put his hand for a second on my shoulder, and then turned away, talking with his eyes fixed out the window in the direction of the grass. General Herkimer had both legs shot off at the Battle of Eriskany. He made his men put his back to a tree stump and with a flintlock rifle fired at the enemy until he bled to death. Commodore Lawrence, mortally wounded, had only one order. School books hold the words of John Paul, self-named Jones, and of Hiram Ulysses Grant. Even yesterday the old tradition was alive. Enemy landing, issue in doubt. If I finish my symphony, when you finish your symphony, I encouraged. If you finish your symphony, said Florence quietly. If I finish my symphony, it must be in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. His speech took on a hushed, abstracted tone. Massachusetts, Rhode Island, or Connecticut. New York, New Jersey. Pennsylvania, his voice rose higher. Maryland, Virginia, or West Virginia. His shoulders shook and he seemed to be crying. North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida. I left them, convinced the madness of the country had found still another victim. That night, I thankfully boarded the European clipper for the last time. The next day, I sank back into civilization as into a comfortable bed. The United States, July 4th, N.A.N.A. A decent respect for the opinion of mankind dictates the content of this summary. Less than two centuries past, a small group of smugglers, merchants, and planters united in an insurrection, which in its course gathered to itself such an accreta of riffraff, debtors, convicts, adventurers, careerists, foreigners, theoreticians, idealists, revolutionary soldiers of fortune and restless men, that at the height of their numbers they composed with their sympathizers, perhaps a third of the people in the country. After seven years of inept war in which they had all the breaks, including that of a half-hearted enemy, they established upon this continent a new nation. Some of the phrases thrown off in the heat of propaganda were taken seriously, and despite shocked opposition written in the basic law, the cryptogram is readable backward or forward, straight away or upside down. Unparalleled resources, the fortuitous historical moment, the tide of immigration drawing on the best of the world, the implicit good in conception necessarily resulting in the explicit best of being, high purpose, inventive genius, exploratory urge, competitive spirit, fraternal enthusiasm, what does the ascription matter if the end product was clear for all to see? 
is it not fitting that a nation calling itself lightly god's country meaning a land abundantly favored by nature should find its dispatch through an act of the benefactor become understandably irritable this is not to pose the editorial question of justice but to remember in passing the girdled forests abused prairies gullied lands the stupidly harnessed plains wasted coal gas petroleum the millions of tons of rich mud denied hungry soil by Mississippi levees and forced profitlessly into the salt sea. A small part, a heartbreakingly small part of the United States remains at this moment. In a matter of weeks even this little must be overrun, stilled and covered green as all graves are. Scattered through the world there will be Americans, participants in a bitter diaspora. For them, and for their children, to be instructed zealously in the formalities of an antique civilization, there can be no Fourth of July, no Thanksgiving. Only one holiday will remain, and that continue through all the year. Its name, of course, is Memorial Day. W.R.L. This was the last dispatch from the once great editor. It was assumed, generally, that he had perished with so many others. It was only some time later I heard a curious story, for whose authenticity I cannot vouch. True to the flippant prediction of Jackson Goots, Lafassacy returned to the church into which he had been born. He went further and became a lay brother, taking upon himself the obligation of silence. Though an old man, he stayed close to the advancing grass, giving what assistance and comfort he could to the refugees. The anecdotes of his sudden appearance in typhus-ridden camps, mute and gaunt, hastening with water for the feverish, quieting the terrified with a light touch, praying silently beside the dying, sound improbable to me, but I mention them for what they are worth. When winter came again, the Canadian government petitioned the Parliament at Westminster for Crown Colony status, and the assent of the Queen's Privy Council was given to the ending of the Premier Dominion. All that was left of the largest land mass within the British Commonwealth was eastern and northern Quebec, the maritime provinces, and part of the Northwest Territories. The United States and more than half of Mexico had been wiped from the map. From the Pacific to the Atlantic, from Nome to Veracruz, stretched a new Sargasso Sea of Cynodon Dactylon. A hundred and eighty million men, women, and children have been thrust from their homes by a despised weed. I cannot say life on the other continents, and I could call any of them, except possibly Africa, my home, was undisturbed by the disappearance of the United States. American competition gone, the tempo of business life seemed to run slower and slower. Production dwindled, prices rose. Luxury articles were made in abundance, but manufacturers hesitated to adopt American methods of mass production for necessities. Russia, after her new revolution, was a quiet backwater economically, although politically she caused turmoil by giving a home to the Fourth International. Germany became the leading iron and steel country, but it was not an aggressive leadership, rather it was a lackadaisical acceptance of a fortuitous role, while Britain, often on deathbed but never a corpse, without question took the lead in international affairs. Consolidated pemmican and allied industries was now, if not the largest, certainly one of the largest companies in the world. 
we purchased sheep in Australia, beef and wheat and corn in South America, rice and millet and eggs in Asia, fruit and sugar and milo in Africa, and what the farmers of Europe could spare to process and ship back in palatable concentrated form to a world which now constituted our market. Besides all this we had, of course, our auxiliary concerns, many of which dominated their respective fields. Ministers of finance consulted me before proposing new budgets, and there was not a statesman outside the Socialist Union who didn't listen respectfully to my suggestions. Tony Preblesham had proved an invaluable find, never the type to whom authority in the largest matters could be delegated. Nevertheless, he was extremely handy as troubleshooter, exploiter of new territory, or negotiator with competitors or troublesome labor leaders. The pioneers who had fled to the north had little to offer in payment for the vast quantities of food concentrates they required, but the land was rich in furs, timbers, and other resources. With permission of the Danish authorities, I sent Prebelsham to Yuljanahap. There he established our headquarters for Greenland, Iceland, and all that was left of North America. From Yuljanahap immediately radiated a network of posts where our products were traded for whatever the refugees could bring in but the Americans who had gone into the icy wastes were not seeking subsistence. They were striving mightily to reach some place of sanctuary where they could no longer be menaced by the grass. Beyond the Arctic Circle? Here they might learn to imitate the Inuit, living on fish and seals and an occasional obligingly beached whale. But could they be sure, on territory contiguous, or very nearly contiguous to that supporting the weed, that they could count on immunity? They did not believe so. They filled up Newfoundland in the hope that the narrow Gulf of St. Lawrence and the narrower Straits of Belle Isle might offer protective barriers. They crossed on sleds to Baffin Island and in homemade boats to Greenland. Before the grass had wiped out their families and their less hardy compatriots left behind in Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island, these pioneers abandoned the continent of their origin the only effect of their passage having been to exterminate the last of the Inuit by the propagation of the manifold diseases they had brought with them. In the south, the tempo was slower, the striving for escape less hysterical and more philosophic. When the Mexican peon heard the grass was in the next village, he packed his few belongings and moved farther away. From Tampico to Chiapas, the nation journeyed easily south, not regretting too loudly the lands left behind, not crowding or jostling rudely on the highways, not failing to pause for siestas when the sun was hot, but traveling steadily in a quiet resignation that seemed beyond resignation, the extension of a gracious will. But the rest of the world, even in the lethargy which had come upon it in viewing the loss of most of North America, could not afford to leave the grass to its own devices, content to receive the refugees it drove out or watch them die. A World Congress to combat the grass was hastily called in London. It was a distinguished body of representatives from all the nations, and resembled at its best the now functionless Federal Disruptions Committee. At the opening sitting, a delegation with credentials from the President of the United States attempted to join in the proceedings. One of the French members rose to inquire of the chairman, where was the United States? He, the delegate, had read of such a country, had heard it spoken of, and none too favorably. But did it exist, de facto? 
the delegate from haiti asked for the floor and wished to assure his distinguished colleague from the motherland of culture especially did he wish to assure this learned gentleman bound as they were by the same beautiful and meticulous language that his country had good reason to know the united states actually existed or had done so at one time his glorious land bore scars inflicted by the barbarians his own grandfather a great patriot had been hunted down by the united states marines as a bandit he implored a congress with humanitarian designs to refuse admission to the delegates of the so-called united states one of the german delegates after wiping the perspiration from the three folds on the back of his neck said he spoke with great diffidence for fear of being misunderstood the formerly existent country had twice defeated or apparently defeated his own in a war and his distinguished colleagues might misinterpret the spirit which moved him nevertheless he could not refrain from remarking that it appeared to him that a just providence had wiped out the united states and therefore it would be illogical if not blasphemous for this august body to admit a delegation from a non-existent country the american delegation attempted to point out feebly that hawaii still remained and puerto rico and guam the members from the various sections of the british commonwealth arguing the precedence of the governments in exile urged the acceptance of their credentials the representative of switzerland called for a vote and the credentials were rejected this controversy being settled the body in high good humor selected a governing committee to take whatever measures it deemed necessary to protect the rest of the world from the menace after lengthy debate and much conflicting testimony from experts a bold plan was endorsed it was decided to complete the digging of the nicaragua canal and blow up that part of central america lying between it and the isthmus of panama it was a colossal feat of engineering which would cost billions of pounds and untold manpower but the nations of the world not without some grumbling finally agreed to the expenditure while technicians from all over the world directed labor gangs and steam shovels ammunition ships loaded with tons of explosives sailed from every port for panama and cologne though at first reluctant with their contributions the countries had reconsidered and poured forth their shares without stint all obsolete war materials were shipped to the scene of action prisons were emptied to supply the needed manpower and when this measure fell short all without visible means of support were added to the roll short-sightedly costa rica protested vigorously the proposed destruction of its entire territory and there were even momentary uprisings of patriots who proposed to defend their nation with the last drop of blood but common sense and international amity prevailed especially when costa ricans were promised a territory twice as big as their native country in the hinterland between colombia and venezuela a valueless tract both nations had been trying in vain to settle for decades night and day the detonations of high explosives killed fish on both the atlantic and pacific sides of central america and brought stunned birds plummeting down from the skies to their death the coastal plains fell into the sea great mountains were reduced to powder and little by little the gap between north and south america widened but the progress of the work was infinitesimal compared with the advance of the grass it swept over the ancient Aztec empire down to the isthmus of Tehuantepec. The ruins of Mayan civilization, excavated once, were buried anew. 
the demolition engineers measured their daily progress in feet, the grass in miles. When the waters of the Atlantic and Pacific met in Lake Nicaragua, the grass was in Yucatan. When the first green runners invaded Guatemala, a bare twenty miles of northern Panama had been demolished, and hardly a start had been made in the destruction of Costa Rica. Fleets of airplanes bombed the connecting strip in the area left by engineers to the last, but as their flights went on the grass crept into British Honduras. The workers sent another twenty miles of Panama into nothingness, and the grass completed the conquest of Guatemala. They blew up another ten miles, and the grass took over El Salvador. Dynamite widened the Nicaragua Canal to a ridiculously thin barrier as the grass overran Honduras. They stood now, almost face to face, the width of one pitiful little banana republic between them. On one hand, the grass, funneled and constricted to a strip of land absurdly inadequate to support its gargantuan might, on the other the combined resources of man, desperately determined to destroy the bridge before the invader. In tropical heat the work was kept up at superhuman pace. Gangs of native laborers, fainting under their loads, were blown sky-high by impatient technicians, unwilling to waste the time necessary to revive them. In self-defense, the South American states doubled their contributions. At the edge of the weed, all the offensive weapons of the world were massed to stay it as long as possible, for even a day's, even an hour's delay might be invaluable. But the grass overbore the heavy artillery. The flamethrowers, the bombs, the radium, and all the devices in its path. The inventions of war, whose constant improvement was the pride of the human race, offered no more obstacle to the grass than a few anthills might to a herd of stampeding elephants. It swept down to the edge of the ditch and paused at the fifty-mile stretch of salt water between it and the shapeless island, still offering the temptation of a foothold in front of the now vastly enlarged Panama Canal. If those engaged in the task, from coordinator-in-chief down to the sweating water boys, had worked like madmen before, they worked like triple madmen now, for the wind might blow a single seed onto what had been Costa Rica and undo all they had so far accomplished. The explosions were continuous, rocking the diminished territory with ceaseless earthquakes. After an hour on the job, men reeled away, deafened, blinded, and shocked. On the South American side, as had been planned, great supercyclone fans were set up to blow back any errant seed. Fed by vast hydroelectric plants in the Colombian highlands, the noise of their revolving blades drowned out the sounds of the explosions for all those nearby. The oceans became interested participants, and enormously high tides, possibly caused by the difference in level between the Atlantic and Pacific, clawed away great hunks of land. The great island became a small island, the small island an islet. At last, nothing but ruffling blue water lay between the grass and South America. Over this stretch of sea the great fans blew their steady breath, protecting the continent behind from the fate of its northern twin. The passage between was forbidden to all ships for fear they might inadvertently act as carriers of the seed. The lost continent was not only isolated, it was sealed off. 
from the sharp apex of the inverted triangle to its broad base in the arctic ice the grass flourished in one undisputed prairie the sole legatee of all the hopes trials afflictions dreams and victories of the men and women who had lived there since the first alien foot was set upon its soil End of chapter 4